Our second scripture reading tonight is from Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's join together and pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we know that you're alive. We know that you're present in this room and in many, many hearts right now. We understand, too, that we need you to teach us. We share the psalmist who says, teach me your ways. We need you to turn the lights on. And we have every, believe, uh, every reason to believe you will because you have acted on our behalf. So we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, February last year in Colorado Springs, they got hit with a pretty heavy snowstorm. And there was a man who spent hours pushing cars out of the snow. He was a homeless man named Shelby Hudgens. And a stranger observed this and was so moved by it, he created a GoFundMe campaign and raised over $22,000. He then approached this man and gave it to him so that he might have a place to live. Generosity led to generosity. Nicole Bullerman is a third grade teacher in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and she uh, decided to enter into the Make-A-Wish, uh, or rather, uh, Wish for Others, a campaign sponsored by Capital One. And her wish was that her students would leave winter break, all of them with a book they could read. And she ended up uh, winning the contest. Capital One came and delivered three books to each ch child and then gave her $150,000, which she then donated back to the school. Generosity, again, begetting generosity. There's a man in the UK, 64 years old, and after a divorce many years ago, um, he decided he was gonna start to donate blood. Felt like he had to do something um, not focused on himself. And he gave three pints, every three months, or get ready for this, for 30 years. 
for 30 years. In fact, he can no longer give because his skin is so uh, scarred over they can't penetrate it with a needle. So generosity, leading to generosity, life for others. Now, all of these are inspiring stories, at least they were to me. And that's just a few, right? There are countless of these stories that we hear. And there's something about generosity that motivates us differently. When we watch someone do a generous act, we observe them to be so free, so joyful, uh, so careless in the best way, not having cares weighing them down. There's a boldness and a courage that we want to be like, we want to taste, we want to go after ourselves. And if this is true of human generosity, can you imagine the power God's generosity could have on us tonight? If we could just get a little bit more insight into the generosity of God, the power it would have in our own generosity, whether it be giving gifts, whether it be giving our time, whether it be giving our lives, as we heard prayed earlier. So we've been spending the summer studying who is God? You know, what are God's attributes? What are God's characteristics? And we've been doing that through the Psalms. And I want to ask you, if you made your little list, your short list, would generosity go on it? I mean, that, that really gets in an area that's very sensitive for us, doesn't it? I mean, it might be that you look out on the tragedy and poverty of the world and go, generosity? Huh? Or you've been praying for something over and over again for years and years, asking God to give it to you and say, generosity? Huh? It's very easy. I find that people's faith many times gets stopped and they stumble and struggle on this very issue. Is God good, as we sang about earlier? Is He generous? And yet we also have to realize that it's not just a circumstance thing. Because the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, God gave literally the entire world to except for one tree, and they felt like he was ripping them off. And they went for that one tree, and I think all of us could say, yeah, I see some of that in my heart. There are many good things in my life, but there's this one thing that I want, and I'm not getting it, and so I don't believe God is generous. And so we need to get into God's testimony about himself, the Bible. We need to get into that, and we need to open our minds to his generosity. And I want to look at, at it in two areas, God's generous redemption and God's generous creation. So first of all, God's generous redemption. In verse 3 we read, when iniquities or transgressions prevailed against me. So the psalmist is saying this, when I felt overpowered and I felt overwhelmed with my own guilt and moral failings. That's what he's talking about there. I was thinking back to uh, the final scene in the movie Schindler's List, if you've seen it. And you know, um, it's a scene that uh, wasn't part of the historical account, but I think Steven Spielberg geniusly placed in there because it just, it, it 
just named how all of us would feel. Uh, you know, Arthur Schindler saves near 1,200 uh, Jewish men, women, and children by having them employed in his factory during World War II in Germany, saves them from the camps, the death camps. They work for him. And uh, at the end, the scene that Spielberg plays out is Schindler is sitting there before all those people, and it dawns on him that the reason these people were here because, you know, he had resources where, in a sense, he could buy and barter lives. And it hits him, and he, he goes, why? Why wasn't I more generous? There could be more people here. And then he looks at his car, and he goes, this car, why did I keep this car? Ten lives would have been saved in this car. And then he looks, this gold pin, this pin, this would have been worth that. One life, I'm sure I could have got from this. He's just overwhelmed with guilt and sadness, and he collapses, and the Jewish men and women there come around him, and they just hold him. And that is a picture of the Christian gospel. You see, what happens when you begin to understand the Christian gospel? At first, you become overwhelmed with your unworthiness, overwhelmed with your moral failings, but then God covers you with His grace. He comes around you with His grace. But for you and I to be able to really grasp that, we have to understand two things. One is we have to reckon with the power of our sin, the power of our guilt. It's not a pleasant place to go for any of us. But we have to go there like the psalmist does. He talks about iniquity and transgressions. Those are different words. They bring out different nuances. Some would say, well, iniquity is a more twisting and distorting, that tendency we have to do to the truth and what's good and right. Another would say, you know, transgression is that crossing boundaries. Uh, but it all refers to this idea of sin. And what he's talking about is those moments when we are prevailed over. Now, you know, in my life, there are those moments where I clearly see that. You know, and you probably have these two where there's no, no wondering, oh, gee, do I have, does sin ever overpower me? Maybe for you it's your anger erupts. Or you crossed some line you thought I never would cross, ethically or personally. And many times uh, we can see that, but there are lots of times, too, where we don't see that power in our lives. And you don't see it until you place yourself under the standard of God, the law and rule of God. Let me give you an analogy. You know, if you've ever tried to diet in your life, you know, you realize as soon as you put yourself under that law and that rule, you go, I, you know, I never knew I was so weak. I never knew that, you know, I would, you know, totally, you know, yell at my roommate and scream at them because they ate that one little piece of food that I had. You know, I, I never knew that I could get so desperate and so selfish because the standard revealed it. Until you put yourself under that, you got a clear view of what you were like. Well, the law of God is the same way. You see, a challenge we have in American culture is we tend to live by our standards. Uh, individuality, freedom, good things, theoretically, right? Good things. But what it results in is most of us tend to live by our standard. You know, maybe my standard's part of what I've gleaned myself. Some of it's some social standards that I've picked, maybe some religion thrown in there. And I find this with Christians as well. 
You know, when basically we come under God's rule or law, and when it begins to interrupt our lives or become difficult, it's easy to kind of back up and go, well, I just think God is love, or God, right? These are the things that we'll do. But if we dare to step under the commandments of God, something will happen. One is we will feel overwhelmed, as I said. And Jesus told a parable about this, the parable of the unmerciful servant. He tells a parable and because he's trying to drive home to you and I, drive it home in just crazy, exaggerated ways so that we would understand. He tells a story of a servant who's in debt to a king for, in our modern translation, $6 billion. Now, I know some of you have student debt, right? Some of you have credit card debt. But if today you found out you were $6 billion in debt, you would just, I don't know what you do, right? You would either laugh, cry, I don't know, whatever it is. That's an unpayable debt. And Jesus is trying to say by that, listen, when you and I stand before God, if we should dare to live under his standard of goodness and righteousness and love, if we, you know, the, the, the law of God, as Jesus understood it on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, listen, it's not the fact that you didn't murder someone, you murder people in your heart all day long. It's not the fact that you didn't commit adultery, but you're basically lusting after people that aren't your covenanted spouse all the time. If we get down there and see goodness, truth, and beauty the way God does, we realize that we have an unpayable debt. And I know you might not be a Christian here. You might be just looking into the Christian faith. But I think this is true for all of us. I mean, we can't even live up to our standards, let alone the standards of God. And so the result is when we're living by individualism and freedom and the way we do this, we'll tend to think we're pretty good folk. You know, if I stand before God, I'll need a touch-up. You know, I'll need him just to grade on the curve a little bit. I think a lot of people I talk to will say they're really betting, hedging their bets on the idea that if there's a God and I stand before him, he'll look at me and go, you know, yeah, you screwed up some, but you did some good stuff, and I'm generous, and so you're forgiven. We really don't understand how unpayable the debt. We don't expect to come before God and him to say, you owe me $6 billion in love. You owe me $6 billion in justice and goodness and kindness. I don't expect that. But I'm a minister, right? I mean, so I have less debt, right? That's the scary thing about religious work, right? That's the scary thing about when you get in the church. And here's the point I'm trying to make here. If you are not willing to be overwhelmed with sin, you will never be overwhelmed by grace. If you're not willing to be overwhelmed by sin, you will never be overwhelmed by grace. If you're not willing to let God's law be big in your life, God's grace will never be big in your life. Sometimes I, you know, depict this chart, and I wish, you know, I could write it up there, but I'll just kind of do my body here. Uh, I'll be your chart. I was talking to someone this week, and I thought about this chart that some of you have seen. It's often called the cross chart, where basically there's kind of a, a greater than uh, symbol like this. And the top line here represents us kind of climbing in our knowledge of who God is as we're growing and seeing his holiness and his righteousness and his greatness. But as we do that, the gap between ourselves and him just grows and grows and grows and grows. And I mean, you know, world religions will say at that point, you better start running. 
You know, you better start like working hard to close that gap. But you see the predicament you're in. If God's going to get more morally, morally beautiful and he's going to get greater and holier, which he should if you're going to come to know God, it's inevitable that you're going to see the gap. But the Christian gospel doesn't just leave us with a gap. It has a cross. And as the gap grows, the cross grows. The redemption grows, which leads to the second thing. For us to see God's generous redemption, the power of grace. Uh, the psalmist says, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgression. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. Everybody's hope, not just the hope of Christians. This God is the hope for all people, the psalmist is saying. He meant in his context, the nations as well as Israel. And there's a couple things about this power of grace we see here. First of all, the psalmist is saying, when the force of your law came crashing down, when the force of your law, the judgment and guilt of it became crashing down on me, you pushed me out of the way and you took the hit. You allowed yourself to be crushed by your own law. This is what the prophet Isaiah says when he talks about the Messiah and says, he was crushed for our iniquities. The law of God fell on him. The judgment fell on him. Secondly, he's saying, you atoned for my transgressions. They were my transgressions. They weren't yours. I did the stuff. They were my moral failings. I personally interacted. I made the decision. They were premeditated. They were mine, but you made them yours. You took my sin and you made it yours, so much so that you became sin itself for me. You became my sin before the judgment bar of God. You only had righteousness, but you took my sin. Isaiah again would tell us he was pierced for our transgressions. Thirdly, he says, you answer us with righteousness. You could have answered me by going condemned, but instead you answered me by saying no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You could have answered me unrighteous, but instead you answered me righteous. You could have answered me filthy. Instead you said blameless, holy in splendor. You answered me with salvation. And you should have answered me with judgment. And how did he do this? By awesome deeds. Now, the psalmist is referring to many of the awesome deeds that God did for Israel to demonstrate his grace and faithfulness. But all of those were culminating in one great deed, the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, who would become the atonement for all those that believed in him. Now, many faiths will teach that you are saved by the teachings of the religion, right? You know, the writings and the teachings of the guru. And I think the modern version of that is we think, you know, if I can just get the right belief and philosophy in my life, that's going to save me. If I can figure it out in my head, that will save me. But the problem is you and I live in our bodies. The good that we've done and the bad that we've done isn't just in our head, we've done them in our bodies. So you see, just believing a teaching is not going to change that. 
It's only the Christian faith that teaches that God comes in the body. He comes in the flesh. It's the only faith that teaches that because God knows we need atonement in the body. We need someone to come live the life that we never lived. We need someone that actually faces the judgment and the suffering that we face. This is what the gospel teaches. The awesome deed that God did was he came in the flesh and he stood in my place, in your place, so that you could be redeemed. And now, how do we understand that redemption? You know, both the Old Testament and the New Testament writers speak about redemption in a superlative way. They talk about not just the grace of God, but it's modified grace. Because you and I have a tendency, you know, with grace, when we think about grace, we think like being composed under pressure. Well, grace, someone just kind of said to you, uh, you know, maybe you had this experience where you go, I'm sorry to someone, and they go, well, okay. Or they don't say anything, or they just go, oh, all right. That's not grace. When God, when Moses said, I want to see you, God passed before him, and he not only shined out his glory, this is what he said. He was wanting to say to him, Moses, I want you to know who I am. And this is what he led off with. He did go and talk about his justice and his punishment, but this is what he led off with. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's the Old Testament version of grace. And then you had our reading this evening from Ephesians. You saw it. He talked about the riches of God's grace, the riches of it, the treasures of it, which he lavished on us. In chapter 2, he says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And then the apostle Paul, who needed more than just a little forgiveness. Paul, who imprisoned people, who caused, blew up families and caused people to be killed for their faith. Paul, who was like a wild bull in a vineyard, that's how he was described. This is what Paul says, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ overflowed upon me. Folks, I'm talking about loads of grace, heaps of grace, rivers of grace, oceans of grace, mountains of grace, bountiful grace, abundant grace. This is what the gospel is teaching. The Son of God did not die for paltry grace. The Son of God did not die to give puny, stingy grace. The sacrifice itself shows you how much grace. It's endless grace. I don't know what right now is keeping you from wanting to draw near to him. Maybe you're like, God, this is the hundredth time. There's no way you could be that gracious. Maybe it's God, I'll get my act together. and I don't know what it is for you, but what I want to tell you is you will not, sin will never prevail over grace. In the book of Romans, God says where sin increases, grace increases. You know, we sin and think, I've got that. he increases the grace. Now, of course, that brings up the question, though, why wouldn't people sin as much as they want? And to that I'd say, really? Have you heard anything I said about the Son of God dying for you? I mean, if your answer to that sort of sacrifice and grace is go, great, a free pass. I can destroy myself now, right? If you've understood it, you're like, 
It leads to holiness. He talks about, you know, the holiness of your temple here. But a very important thing here. Um, he talks about satisfaction with grace. We will be satisfied with the good things of your house. Now, you know there's a big difference between reading about all the great restaurants and the great things that are made in this city. It's one thing, and it's one thing to see that little tray of things they bring around, you know, the desserts that have this, they're petrified, basically, desserts from a long time ago, right? It's one thing, you know, you, you could even go to Rose's Luxury, if you wait your time, you could go there, and uh, you, you, could, you could sit down, and you could have that meal delivered before you, and you could sit there and watch it and describe it and tell everybody about it, but there's a big change when what happens? When you eat it, when you taste it. A lot of us, when it comes to God's grace, you can, what I'm saying is you can only be satisfied if you take something in and digest it and taste it and eat it. I think many of us see God's grace from a menu. We sort of understand it in our head. We can even describe it to other people. It's sort of a picture before us. We don't eat it like we should. We don't take it in. And the reason you'll know when you took it in is when you are like, well, when you give a great, like, redemptive burp, you know. I was, I was trying to make a joke there, but it's kind of, you know, when it falls like that, I know I better say something or I'll get an email about that. You know, like, pastor, that was really rude. You know, I'm talking about, you know, in ancient days, right, that was a sign of satisfaction, right? You would eat, 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 and burp, and everybody knew, satisfied. You and I need to eat that way. But let's move now on to the last point a little bit more briefly. And I don't want you to see these. When I was first reading this psalm, in some ways I was thinking, all right, it talks about redemption, then it just moves to talking about creation. But there's a tie between the two. There's a tie between the two. Because when you look at the New Testament, redemption always leads to creation back again. Verse 9 and 10, you visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide grain. You're, you know, it's just all this lavish thing about the earth. It's just blooming, pregnant with all this fruitfulness and potential, softening it, blessing its growth, all these different things that God is doing. You know, I don't know, um, you know, we see in our world droughts, and we see pestilence and famine. But it's still pretty amazing the bounty that God continues to shed on the earth. The bounty in the richness that we see season after season, year after year. Whether you take a hike or you go to the market, you see it too. And what's that a sign of? It's a sign of what the Bible calls common grace. So you see, here's the connection where we just were, common grace. The Apostle Paul makes this clear when he says, you, God did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul is saying God did those things so that you might know that he's alive, that he's reaching out to you. You know, next time that you're walking on a sunny day or you have a great meal, or you're just delighting in the created world, you ought to go, God's reaching out to me right now. He's reaching to me. And even, 
you know, the foundation of our country, uh, you know, tomorrow, 4th of July, you might hear America the Beautiful. Did you ever realize common grace is talked about in the first stanza? Right? Oh, beautiful forest, spacious skies for amber waves of grain, purple mountain majesty above the fruited plains. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. What's the writer doing? He's thinking about creation, and then he goes, grace. So there's no one that doesn't taste the grace of God. If you are living in the creation here, you are enjoying God's grace. He has compassion on all he's made. But there's a special blessing for those that trust. And here it's a little bit more subtle, but it's present. You know, you have this abundant language, right? There's a picture, actually, he says, of a wagon overflowing with produce. I don't know if you mentioned that, but it's the idea of a wagon that's just, you know, falling. Things are falling off. It's so abundant. But then he says this that things become fruitful in places that normally they're not. I don't know if you mentioned he talks about fruitfulness in the wilderness desert. And you find this also in the Psalms where Isaiah will say, when the Messiah comes, there will be harvest where you wouldn't expect harvest. How many people would go and plant a vineyard on top of a mountain? You wouldn't do it. It ain't going to grow or on a rocky hillside. But when the Messiah comes, even those places will be abounding, bursting forth with fruit. And that means this. You may be looking at an area of your life right now, and you may be going, I will never see fruit here. It's barren. It's stubble. I've tried to plant over and over. I'm not going to see fruit here. Maybe it's in your personal struggles that you have. Maybe it's in your relational life, whatever it is. And this is telling you that God can bear fruit when normal areas can't build it. He has the power to bear fruit. And I see this all the time. I mean, people that say, you know, uh, I am scared to death to, to talk in front of people. And they stand up and talk, and it's just like so powerful. I can't tell you how many, like, incredibly gifted, preaching, introverted pastors I know. I mean, you meet them in a grocery store, and they're like, Hi, how are you? You know, they won't even look at you. They stand up and you're like, what the heck? Or it may be just a characteristic in your life that no one would have thought. I mean, I, I'll just out myself. You know, I've had a lot of people over the years go, Glenn, um, you exude such calm and peace. When I say that to my family, they laugh out loud, you know, because they've seen me in times where it's not like that. It's supernatural grace if you've tasted that. God can bear fruit in any area where you feel like it's not going to happen. Why? Because you are the fruit. You're the fruitfulness of God. And this is where the creation and the redemption come together. James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the gospel of grace, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I know some of you know the ending to this. If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. You and I, we are that work. Jesus said, you can't bear fruit alone, but if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And so, you know, we are the creation that's blooming for those that trust in Christ. In our city here, in maybe a desolate city, God bears fruit. He is bearing fruit through the lives of his people. He's doing that with you. And it looks ahead to something even greater. You know, when you read about those first chapters in the book of Genesis, many times, you know, I, I think I wish we could go back to that place before sin interrupted the world. You know, fruitfulness. 
And this relates to our vocations too, our work, because our work comes out of vocation, fruitfulness and what we do. God didn't just make a world, he gave us stuff to do in the world. And yet we realize there's thorns and thistles, right? The creation is groaning, our work is groaning, you might be groaning, the thought of having to go back on Tuesday. The struggle, you feel like I don't get to do what I really feel like I'm great at doing in this life. We prayed about slaves, bonded slaves, who spend their whole life and maybe die never and have a chance. Where's the hope for them? The hope is the new heavens and the new earth. You see, this little vision we give an abundant earth, it's looking ahead where Jesus Christ goes, behold, all things are new. It's the new creation. Where you and I and those, all those that believe will live and be fruitful for eternity as God meant it to be, right here. Doing the things that he made us to do. Redemption leading to recreation, leading to creation. But all this, my friends, is from the generosity of God. As generous as he's been. I mean, you, maybe you've sat before a big feast or a meal. It's Thanksgiving somewhere else, and you're just like, look at this. Look at this feast. It doesn't come close to the banquet of grace that he's put before us. So let us praise and embrace our generous God. Will you pray with me? Thank you, God. Thank you for your uh, lavish heart, giving your best, your very son. Thank you for your extravagant heart. Thank you for your generous heart. In the name of Christ, amen.